At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we take up three topics. First, is Trump crazy? Amy Willens reports on the opinions of the experts and on her own. Second, would Pence be worse? Jane Mayer of The New Yorker asked a lot of people about Pence and his lifelong ambition to be president, including his own mother. And finally, America after Trump. E.J. Dion of The Washington Post argues that Trump has mobilized progressive political forces that can transform America, and he reminds us that Trump never had a majority of voters and that he's the most unpopular president in our history. We start with Amy Willens. We've seen news reports of people close to the president who say in private he is, quote, unstable, losing a step, and unraveling. Trump reportedly said recently, quote, I hate everyone in the White House. Now we have a new book where many psychiatrists express their professional judgments about the dangerous case of Donald Trump. That's the book's title. It's number four on the New York Times bestseller list this week. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's best known for her award-winning books on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Before we take up the question, is Trump crazy, let's start with a little about the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess the president. What exactly is this book? It's a collection of essays by well-known psychiatrists and mental health specialists looking at Trump's behavior during the campaign before the campaign and now since he's been president and trying to assess his mental health. Obviously, he's not their patient, so they haven't been in long therapy sessions with him. They do know a little bit, some of them, about his background, his family, etc. And they try to assess his uh, mental state. Well, this is relevant, they tell us, because of the 25th Amendment, which nobody really knew anything about until uh, January 20th, 2017. <laughs> the 25th Amendment is the other way a president can remo- be removed from office. There's impeachment, a vote by Congress, but there's also the 25th Amendment says if the majority of the cabinet determines that the president is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, he can be removed. So we do want to know whether he is subject to the 25th Amendment. Uh, and the view of, uh, of these psychiatrists is that they are professionals. It's their job to recognize craziness. They've trained for years to do it. They do it all day long. They get paid good money to do it. So uh, they have a professional responsibility 
to tell us about this. Yes, they do have a professional responsibility to tell us about this. And uh, they argue that the 25th Amendment is applicable to mental illness as well as to, you know, complete uh, deterioration of the brain or incapacity to move or hear. Their argument is strong that we should know what they think of Trump's mental health. Uh, whether their argument is strong that they should be the determinators, the determiners of uh, whether a president should serve in office is another one. I mean, they, there are various sections of this book. One is what's wrong with Trump. Then the middle section is should psychiatrists be even talking about this when he's not their patient? Is that a violation? Or do they have a duty to warn the public? And then the last section is, what's wrong with us that we elected this man president? These are all very good questions. They're great <laughs> questions. The book is truly fascinating. But the second section is the part that disturbs me most because we've seen what happens when psychiatry is in the service of the state during the gulag and the Soviet Union um, and in other places, many other places. Uh, one of the psychiatrists argues that of course he would never participate in a state-mandated uh, psychiatric evaluation but against the state he would. But who's to say when that's going to happen or what that means? Trump could be out of office and mm. you know it just doesn't really... It's it's very concerning, and can they really diagnose him? I will say for myself that although I found all the uh, initial essays about his diagnosis very interesting, they're not that far from what we already thought already, from what the L.A. Times wrote when they said he was unfit for office uh, five months after he took office. You know, hedonistic, lost in the present moment, incurious, and narcissistic. I mean... Uh, one of the essays says he is the most dangerous man in the world today. I think mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. um, more than Rocket Man, even. <laughs> Kim well, Jong-un. Let's hold off <laughs> on Rocket Man here. And uh, we, have to, let's, we have to talk about the Goldwater rule here, which is yes. an important part of this book. Um, until Trump came along, the psychiatry profession had a firm rule that it is unethical for psychiatrists to diagnose people who they have not personally examined, and this be was because in 1964, when Goldwater was the Republican candidate running against LBJ, a bunch of psychiatrists went to the public and said, Goldwater is crazy, he's dangerous, he threatens to destroy the world, and the American Psychiatric Association voted and ruled and made it part of the canon of ethics of the profession that this is Im improper, unethical, and psychiatrists aren't allowed to do it. And the American Psychiatric Association reaffirmed the Goldwater rule with specific reference to Trump in March 2017, two, three months after he took office. So uh, what? What's so they're going against this new reaffirmation of the rule. And, you know, you can see why they did it, because would that we had Goldwater now. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So he was crazy to some psychiatrists back then who had never examined him, but if he were the president now, he would seem a lot more uh, sane than Trump. So, I mean, I, I understand why the Psychiatric Association did reaffirm that. However, I think that this book is truly valuable, so I would hate to see them abide by it. And they assert that they are going beyond that rule because they have a duty to warn 
the public. It's and called the, duty to warn. And the duty to warn is part of it's the almost, ethical yes. rules of the psychiatric right, profession. Right, and the duty to warn is if you have a patient who is an imminent threat to others or himself or herself, should she be a female, then you have the right to infringe on the patient-doctor confidentiality rule. And? And so they are arguing that Donald Trump poses an imminent threat to humanity. So not just one person, yeah. but all of us here. And thus they have a, a duty to warn, as one of them wrote, no, this is Nanette Gartrell and Dee Musbacher in an essay called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands and His Finger on the Trigger. They wrote, the nuclear arsenal rests in the hands of a president who shows symptoms of serious mental instability. This is an urgent matter of national security. The world as we know it could cease to exist with a 3 a.m. nuclear tweet. The duty to warn clause of the ethical code of psychiatry says specifically psychiatrists are required, required to, quote, report, to incapacitate and to take steps to protect. So they're supposed to incapacitate their patient who's threatening to whatever, kill his wife, kill himself. Right. The image is fabulous of it, like uh, twenty, uh, the 27 authors in this book <laughs> rushing the White House to incapacitate the president. <laughs> and, and take steps to protect. So that's what they are invoking in this book. And right. The, and so our, what they're saying is that the Goldwater rule and the duty to warn rule are in opposition to each other right now. And that the duty to warn takes precedence because the danger is so great. Now I want to go back to, to what you said. There's a section of the, the first section about diagnosis. You said, well, we pretty much know what they know. Do they know anything we don't know about Trump's narcissism, his aggression? They, they have ways of talking about it. And this is what I think is important for readers. And one reason is that although they say things that we know or have felt, their analysis is more interesting and more profound because of their professional knowledge and experience. So there's there's also a really wonderful essay by Harper West called In Relationship with an Abusive President. Ah. And it's about uh, domestic abuse and how the president's relationship with the population, at least a segment of it that didn't vote for him, is like uh, his relationship with uh, husbands say uh, relationship with an abused wife. Well, this takes us to part three, which is why does the wife stay with the abusive husband? And and of course, what you could say is, well, there's nothing in this book really. They don't have any any new evidence evidence about Trump that wasn't available during the election, and he got elected. So what we really should ask is, what's wrong with the Trump voters? Are they crazy? Rather than what's wrong with him and in Indeed, this is something that's occurred to the editors and the authors, and what do they have to say about this? Well, again, a lot of it is not so surprising to those of us who've been following uh, commentary on Trump and and who've been thinking about Trump. And one of the essays the writer writes about uh, seeing a woman interviewed at a Trump rally, and she says, I want to take my country back. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says that's exactly the situation with the Trump voters. They feel 
they've been removed from the American conversation, that they no longer have a piece of the American pie, that that their income since the 1960s has not changed, the blue-collar worker doesn't have a job, all the things we've been thinking about, about the inequalities in America and the loss of the manufacturing class. So it's not that surprising. Well, it strikes me that what is dangerous about Trump isn't so much that he's narcissistic, that he lies, that yeah, there have been other presidents, yeah, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh if you know, if you run through our recent presidents, we find many things that are diagnosable. Some were subject to depression. Some were accused of being delusional. Alcoholics. Alcoholics. Compulsive womanizers. The big issue with Trump, it seems to me, that they point to is this combination of a lack of impulse control with this extreme aggression. And if this were a husband who is beating up his wife or kids, you know, that would be an issue for them. But it's the finger on the trigger right. thing. And it's the idea, the too. The nuclear trigger. The it, nuclear trigger. It's the idea, too, that when such a character feels rejection, that's when they become violent. So if he feels somehow he's not managing things or he's not in control, that's when he's most likely to make the impulsive decision to do something really wrong and it is indeed it's the finger on the trigger but uh one of the interesting things that they write about and then i hate to say they it's one writer or another and i'm just remembering someone says trump in that famous hot mic story where he talks about having a woman by her that in fact trump has all of us by the Thank you. P word. Thank you. I don't know if it's sayable on the air. Let's leave it at that. We're leaving it at that. And that that is a problem. We are abused by this person and we haven't found a way to get away from him. And indeed, when you think of the 25th Amendment telling you that the cabinet has to decide if he's unfit or unable, imagine that cabinet. We watched the cabinet sit there while Trump said... How do you like being in my cabinet? And they all went, oh, it's so great, Mr. <laughs> President. You know, he made them publicly suck up to him. So are they going to really, appointed by him, are they going to be the ones to tell us he's mentally unfit? The book is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. We've been speaking with Amy Willens. She's our expert on the 25th Amendment and uh, the duty to warn. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. Would Pence be worse? Donald Trump is narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and aggressive. Maybe he'll be forced out of office before the end of his term, but would that be a good thing? Would Pence be worse? Jane Mayer has been working on that question. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback and back on the bestseller list in Los Angeles. The last time she was here, we talked about the secret power behind the Trump presidency, the reclusive and very right-wing hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. Jane Mayer, welcome back. 
Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, my first question is, do you think that Mike Pence wants to be president? Oh, I, I think there's, um, there's no doubt. In fact, I interviewed so many people for this story, I think something like 60-some 60, 60 people, and including um, the editor of the newspaper in his hometown, who said to me, Mike Pence popped out of his mother's womb wanting to be president. Uh, he, he's, by the time he was in high school, he was telling his um, classmates that he wanted to be president of the United States. This is, uh, I, this is one of the revelations to me that I, I just didn't expect. I knew he was you know, very much a social conservative and a, a member of the Christian right, but he's also hugely ambitious. But yet he's never been really successful as a candidate or as an elected official. He, he lost his first elections. He barely won the governor's race, got only 49% of the vote. And you say uh, his tenure as governor nearly destroyed his political career. I remember that when Trump picked him, it looked like he might lose his reelection campaign for governor. So how do you explain his relatively weak performance as a candidate and as governor? Part of the problem is his views really are so extreme that he has, as, as one of the Republicans that I quote in the story, a guy named Bill Osterley said, he scared a lot of people, even in Indiana, that, which is partly why he only got 49% of the vote when he ran for governor. I mean, to, to, to balance that out, though, he did, he did serve a number of terms in Congress, of course, and kept getting reelected. And he, meanwhile, was rising in the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress. So... So he has some skills, and I wouldn't underestimate those. In particular, he has a, a great gift for making extreme positions seem less threatening. It's kind of the same gift that, that Ronald Reagan had, and to some extent Dick Cheney had. The, the, he knows how to explain things in a way that makes him seem affable and likable, and you, you don't really grasp the, the sort of the threat that's um, in, in some of the policy positions he's taking. Well, among the 60 people you interviewed for your story in The New Yorker to understand Mike Pence, you talked to his mother. What is she like? <laughs> his mom's name is Nancy um, uh, Pence Fritch. She's gotten re remarried. Um, she, uh, after her, uh, Mr. Pence died, um, she was actually quite delightful. And I would say to the extent that Mike Pence has any charm, it probably comes from his mom. She's a um, staunch Irish Catholic lady who was originally from Chicago, um, very proud of her roots, and um, moved to Indiana because of her husband's job. And uh, she had a sense of humor. She was pretty, you know, very proud of her, all of her sons. She's got six kids. It was her other son, though, her first son, um, Gregory, who um, actually was uh, taking a lot of sort of ribbing her and and ribbing his brother and, and kind of taking a few sort of sibling-like shots at Mike Pence while I was interviewing him, too. In your New Yorker piece, you quote Mike Pence's mother telling you, I was a Stepford wife. What is she talking about? <laughs> 
Well, I was asking her um, over coffee in uh, Columbus, Indiana, where they're all from, you know, how did she become a Republican? Because she'd originally been a a, a big Democrat, a fan of the Daily Machine in in Chicago and and of the Kennedys. And she said, well, my husband became Republican, and I guess I just sort of followed what he wanted. And she said, I was a Stepford wife. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) she, she actually went back to college when she was 65 and got a degree in psychology and that she sort of said that's when she started thinking for herself and her her son Gregory who is uh, Mike Pence's brother said yeah she was like the scarecrow she you know that's when she got her brain and then the mom looked at me and she said you see what I have to put up with so I mean they were they were you know they were kind of lively nice people funny uh, affable and um, self-deprecating and warm. It's the father in the family, though, who I think casted sort of a big shadow. And um, he was actually German, not Irish, and a staunch disciplinarian. And he um, had a rule in the household, which was that the Pence children, there were six of them, were not allowed to speak at the dinner table. They had to sit there in silence while their parents spoke. Wait a minute. Wait a um, minute. The children were not allowed to speak at the dinner table? They were not. They were forbidden from speaking except to say a few things like, pass the butter, please, and then thank you. Anyway, he was, uh, Greg Pence said to me that their father was very black and white. Um, he, He enforced discipline with a belt. And you always knew where you stood with him, the brother said. And he said, then he said to me, and, and my brother, meaning Mike Pence, is a lot like him. Well, one of the things we know about Mike Pence is that he's a intensely religious evangelical Protestant. His mother told you, quote, religion is the most important thing in our lives. What else did she say? But she said, you know, we don't, we're, we don't take it that seriously and we don't proselytize. But you see, the thing is, Mike Pence broke with the family's religion. Um, that all the kids, the, all the boys in the family, their four sons and two daughters, and the, all four sons were altar boys, and they were very, very involved in, you know, parochial school and all of that. But, but, but when Mike Pence went off to college, to Hanover College in, in Indiana, he changed his religion. He, con- he, he became born again and converted to evangelical Christianity. And, and it interested me because he's someone who has, if you look at his pattern, very much kind of flowed, been caught up in in the larger political currents and the current at that point was moral the moral majority was proselytizing across the country and trying to convert among others catholics to become evangelical christians protestants and and he he got caught up in that and he changed the religion which is you know quite a surprise in his family and and they're dealing with it but it it it's a it's an important rupture you said his family were democrats i was amazed to learn from your article in The New Yorker that Mike Pence voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, not for Ronald Reagan. What's the story there? Well, again, don't forget, Jimmy Carter was a born-again Christian. So he, uh, there were a lot of evangelicals who, who voted for him, um, including ones that would become increasingly conservative afterwards and become more Republican, and that's what happened with Mike Pence. He, he fell in love with Reagan after, <laughs> after voting for Jimmy Carter, um, and Reagan became kind of his, his role model. So again, in fact, I, I didn't put in the story, but I have read that Mike Pence likes to listen to, on you know, to to tapes of Reagan's speeches and and joke. I've heard him tell some of Reagan's jokes. I think he's he's again tried to. Ca- 
capture that sort of affable conservative style that 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 won't be as off-putting to people. But um, beneath that style is about as hardcore right-wing social conservative as you can find in this country. And what's the deal with his refusing to eat dinner alone with another woman? Does he really think other women will lure him into adultery? <laughs> well, you know, there is it's it's this code in the um evangelical right um and the idea is that you you need to keep yourself out of temptation. So he will not eat dinner with a woman other than his wife alone, and he also will not go to a cocktail party or any place where they're serving alcohol in mixed company when she is not present. I mean, in some ways, I felt that his wife, Karen Pence, who he calls mother, she acts almost like a chaperone in his life. And you kind of have to wonder, you know, why is it he feels he needs such chaperoning? Yeah. Well, you need to keep yourself out of temptation, he he believes, and yet he supported Donald Trump after the excess Hollywood tape came out where, uh, let us say, Trump uh, does not try to keep himself out of temptation. Well, this is where you see the other side of Pence. So people think of him as an uncompromising Christian conservative, but in fact, he has he's cut his his necessary deals when he needs to in order to get ahead. And and getting on the on the uh, ticket with with Trump was certainly uh, the largest example that he was willing to sort of strike a, a, a Faustian bargain when he needed to. And it rescued him. I mean, it must be said, uh, many people I interviewed thought that Mike Pence would never have gotten reelected as governor of Indiana. He was incredibly unpopular. There were signs popping up all over the state saying, fire Mike Pence. And, and so it was really actually a, you know, a rescue operation when Trump put him on the ticket because there are very strong odds for vice presidents becoming president. It put him in, in line to be potentially a president of the United States in a way he never would have had the chance otherwise. One of your sources, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you quote saying, if Pence were to become president, the government would be run by the Koch brothers. Uh, You, of course, uh, have written the book on the Koch brothers, and you report that in 2012, one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch, wanted Pence to run for president. How did Mike Pence, the the far-right Christian evangelical conservative, become a favorite of the Kochs? Well, it's a curious story because, and one that I actually didn't know till I got uh, deeply into the reporting on Pence. But as you, you know, your question sort of suggests that the the Cokes are not religious. They don't care about um, sort of social conservatism. They call themselves libertarians. So they they certainly are not aligned with Pence on these moral issues having to do with his hatred of abortion and and you know th- those kinds of issues. So what do they have in common? Well, it turns out in 2009, Mike Pence started doing some major economic favors for the Kochs. Uh, They were tremendously powerful, but they were really worried that um, some legislation was going to pass through Congress that was going to end up taxing carbon pollution. They're a huge fossil fuel company, and it would have hurt their bottom line tremendously. And Mike Pence took up their cause, and he he campaigned and pushed and wheedled and he, he took a, a, a petition that the, that the Koch organization had created and got tons of his colleagues in the house to sign on to it saying that they would
would pass no legislation to stop global warming that would require spending a, a cent of government money. And and what happened as a result of his activism and that of a few other people in the in the uh, leadership on the Republican side in the House was that they they he succeeded in killing the legislation which would have resulted in a tax on carbon pollution, helping coke industries hugely, and and from there on out aligning the Republican Party against doing anything about climate change, unlike almost any other political organization in the world. Um, and so it was a, a hugely valuable thing that he did for Coke Industries, and Coke Industries has rewarded him ever since. And he became, you know, one of their favorite politicians, if not their favorite politician. So that's the, that's the origin story of of how they became so close. And then they began to try. The Cokes were hoping to push him to run for president. So I need to return to our opening question. Would Pence be worse than Trump right now? What what answers did people give you to that question? So I, I asked tons of people, and, 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 you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was among the people who, <laughs> who were most negative about Pence were people in Indiana, including a number of Republicans. Even moderate Republicans were, were found Pence just so far right that they, that they thought, and, and, and also kind of incompetent, that they, they were just warning me against him. And there's one um, Republican state legislator I quote named Ed Clay from Indiana who said to me, I would take Trump any day of the week and twice on Sundays over Pence, which is kind of shocking. Yeah. And, 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 a num- you know, and a number of the others did too. And then <laughs> there's some Democrats who, for different reasons, kind of said the same thing. I quote Harold Ickes in the story. Um, who's a big Democratic operative and has been for a number of years. And, and, and Icky said to me, Democrats should pray that Trump stays in office because he feared that if Pence came in, it would be a much harder foil for the Democrats to run against. Pence, Pence is likely to be, it would be able to work with Congress if he were president because he's been in Congress, maybe even get something done, might be a little bit more competent than, than Trump, you know, and, and certainly in this in social conservative legislation sphere, he poses a, a, a different and bigger threat. But it all comes down to, I think, how great a threat you think Trump might be in terms of starting a nuclear war. And that is everybody's caveat. You know, if, if, if you think Trump might start a nuclear war, what could be worse? Pretty much nothing. But beyond that, I, I can't say that I heard a lot of votes for Pence. Jane Mayer, she interviewed 60 people for her piece for The New Yorker. It's called The Danger of President Pence. It's required reading for everybody interested in politics. Jane, thanks so much for this piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And finally, America after Trump. We have a special segment for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And for that, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist for The Washington Post. He teaches at Georgetown University, and we see him a lot on MSNBC. He's written seven books. The new one, just published, is titled One Nation After Trump. E.J. Dion, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, you open your new book by declaring that a crisis can be an opportunity. We certainly have a crisis. We have a president who's 
ignorant, narcissistic, reckless, abusive. I could go on. But how would you describe the crisis we are in right now? Well, let me first say, as you know, the book is co-authored with my friends, uh, uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. And um, we came together on this book in, initially because we felt this sense of crisis, that uh, somebody like Donald Trump really had no business being president of the United States, which we say right there on the first page of the yeah. book. But the opportunity, I think, is visible uh, all over the country. First, I think Trump has given the system a jolt. Um, there were a lot of things slowly decaying in the system, um, and Trump has sped this up to the point where no one can miss it. We've had a decline in political norms. We lay a lot at the feet of a radicalized Republican Party in our book. Um, but, uh, Trump has kind of obliterated political norms, and you don't realize how important norms are, which are basically basic understandings how people in power or close to power should behave. You don't realize how important they are until they disappear altogether. I've been saying a lot uh, in the Trump years um, that the wisest person is the political philosopher Joni Mitchell, uh, who said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm. And Trump is sure reminding us of that. Secondly, um, we're seeing sort of an autocratic side to Trump, which is a genuine threat. And we can see how our um, institutions can be subverted. You know, he had to, in classic autocratic fashion, he's attacking the courts, attacking the media, demonizing uh, his opponents, trying to undermine the very idea of facts. I mean, the notion of alternative facts. All of this has called forth um, a powerful response. I think in the media that I've been involved with all my life, I think there's a realization that uh, there is something wrong with false balance, and that you. You know, the media's job is to tell the truth, um, and if it's inconvenient, uh, you don't really have to say, well, there's another side to this story, when there really isn't another side uh, to a set of facts. You're seeing it especially in the mobilization um, around the country, both in civil society and in politics. Um, you, uh, every Trump action has drawn an extraordinary outpouring of civic activism, whether it was the deportations where people rushed to the airports, lawyers rushed to the courts, um, as you know, citizens rushed to aid uh, their neighbors, um, whether it's on the, the DACA uh, ruling where there was an immediate pushback. Uh, perhaps the most impressive pushback was on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, where many Republican congressmen were, who from very Republican districts we're shocked to see um, enormous turnouts of their own constituents saying uh, this law shouldn't be uh, repealed, that uh, we should build on it. Um, uh, finally, I think you're seeing some real activism uh, all the way down to the precinct level in the country. And we talk about a lot of groups in the country that are recruiting candidates for office up and down um, the ballot. Um, and people trying to turn anti-Trump anger into actual political organization on the ground. And um, this is something that needed to happen to make our democracy work in any event. And I think Trump is, has accelerated this process. And while the risks of Trump are enormous, that aspect of this period is very constructive and helpful. The subtitle of your book, One Nation After Trump, is A Guide for the Perplexed. And of course, 
you took that from the medieval Jewish scholar Moses Maimonides, whose book with that title was published in 1190. I learned this from Wikipedia. That Guide to the Perplexed sought to find rational explanations for many events in the Bible. I see that you, like Maimonides, are seeking rational explanations for, in this case, events in our recent political history, like what the hell happened to make Trump president? Do you have a rational explanation for that? Well, first of all, every single one of us is uh, deeply grateful that you compared us to Maimonides. So <laughs> okay. I will pass this on to my co-authors. Thank you for that. Um, well, there is a rational explanation uh, for, uh, for this. First, we talk a lot in the book at the beginning about the fact that we now have a non-majoritarian democracy in the United States. And that cannot be forgotten that Trump lost the popular vote by 2.9 million, that the Electoral College is increasingly out of step with where people actually live in the country. We only had three elections from 1824 when popular voting started to 1996, where you had the electoral vote out of tune with the popular vote, and two of those were quite weird. There was really only one that was just straight out out of line. Uh, We've had two such elections since 2000. We argue that's not an accident, um, because the Electoral College vastly over-represents rural America, over-represents smaller states, um, and compound that with the United States Senate, where by 2050, Uh, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, which means 70% of Americans will have 30% of the Senate, uh, uh, which is there's something wrong with that. Then gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the impact of big money on politics. So that's one piece we really have to address as a country because it's making us an undemocratic democracy. Uh, But the other side of it is that the country went through um, an enormous amount of turmoil in a very short time. The Iraq War followed by the Great Recession, um, and all of this happening at a time when economic inequality um, has been rising, that we felt the fruits of globalization and technological change for a long time, but it really hit a crisis point. Um, And we don't uh, shy away from saying that uh, Trump ran, in many cases, a directly racist campaign. There's nothing else you can say about calling Mexican immigrants rapists. Um, and that there was certainly race and racial reaction and reaction immigration certainly played um, a very important role in his victory. But you can't write it all off to that. We, we think it's, it's a form of denial to say race wasn't part of it, but it's also a form of denial um, to ignore the vast inequalities both among Americans as individuals, um, but also across regions, um, even within states. Uh, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts, where... Um, the old mill towns, like the one I grew up in, um, have really been hammered by economic change. They were, um, you know, Massachusetts is so democratic that they voted for um, Hillary by a, a large margin anyway. But the mill towns were more open to Trump than the traditional suburbs. And you see the split between Chicago and downstate Illinois, New York metro area versus upstate. Um, and, of course, those key Midwestern states that Trump very, very narrowly um, carried in places like Erie and Reading, Pennsylvania, um, deindustrialization is re- has really hammered living standards. And so for progressives, I think um, there is potentially a, um, I think, a useless argument, a counterproductive argument to say Trump was about race. No, he was about 
um, economic discontent. I think uh, we should accept that race played a big role in it, but the part we can most address are economic inequalities that actually affect parts of the white working class, but also a very large share of African Americans uh, and Latinos. And uh, if I could add one more thing, the, sure. I have been really struck thinking about the book and the election by the slogan of the uh, 1963 March on Washington, and the slogan was Jobs and Freedom. And what that slogan embodied is the idea that if you care about racial justice, you also have to care about economic justice. And if you care about economic justice, you have to care about racial justice. And that we need to bring these causes together and not split them from each other. Splitting them from each other is Donald Trump's game, and we shouldn't play that. So do you think that Bernie Sanders identified the issues that can be deployed to recruit Trump voters back into the Democratic fold? Of course, there's a lot of people at the Democratic National Committee who don't agree with that. No, I think Bernie um, identified a number of issues that actually Hillary Clinton picked up on. Um, She didn't go for single payer, but she did have a very substantial expansion of Obamacare. She came very close to adopting Bernie's uh, free college, and I think that young voters, not only in the U.S., but in Britain notably, um, have shown that they feel very excluded from uh, economic opportunity uh, in this period. Um, and I think Bernie um, addressing class division, which is something he's done all his life, um, is an important part of, uh, of the puzzle here. Um, and so I don't think it's, uh, you know, I have a kind of very broad view of the left that you, the, the left can't win without the center left and the center left can't win without the left. Um, and I think what we need is not a, do you move to the left or move to the center? I think we need to focus on what steps do we need to take to create a more equal society? Um, what steps do we need to take to empower workers in an economy that increasingly disempowers them? Uh, Bernie talks a lot about that, but there were a lot of other people on the progressive side, I think, who were very open to that, whether they supported Bernie or Hillary. I'm, uh, yes, I am trying to pitch a big tent uh, here, because yes. I think that's the only way progressives can win. Last question. Your book is called One Nation After Trump, and you argue that Trumpism does not own the future. That is great news. Are you sure you're right about that? I deeply believe that. I, I truly and honestly do. I, I, I suppose I could get more publicity for the book if I denied a basic tenet of the book, but I can't. Um, you know, a couple of things here. Um, first of all, Donald Trump did not get a majority in the election, and he's hovering around 38, 42 percent in the polls, the lowest polling uh, for a new president that we have ever seen. So from the beginning, he never had a majority of the country on his side. And unlike other presidents who try to reach out to their opponents, all he's done is reach out to a very narrow part of his base. And so he hasn't added to um, his percentage. Secondly, Trump is exceptionally weak uh, among younger voters. Um, he, he did no better than, and I think he may have been a point weaker than Mitt Romney among younger voters. Hillary lost some ground, not to Trump, but to third party voting. Um, and so if, uh, you know, the young do own the future and they are not on Donald Trump's side. And, um, I'm sure you've talked about this for a long time. The, um, the future of the country is also a country that will be more demographically diverse, more Latino, more Asian, more African-American. And those 
um, communities are not at all enamored of Trump. So I think that, you know, in the long haul, um, the country is not going in that direction. But we have to fight in the short haul um, to, A, prevent the damage Trump can do. Um, you know, organizing did a good job on that around Obamacare. I think we've got to do the same around this awful reactionary tax bill. Um, and uh, also protect, um, you know, protect immigrants and African-Americans from uh, some of the things this administration could do or in some cases has already done. But we also have to build to the, for the future. And I guess that's the last thing I want to say, if I could, about the book, sure. which is um, we think that opposition to Trump is important, but conversion, political persuasion, is also an important part of the story. And so the whole back half of our book is our sort of program for social reconstruction, if I can put it in those grand terms, where we talk about the steps we need to take to create a more just uh, economy, the steps we need to take to strengthen civil society, and a lot of steps we need to take uh, to reform our democracy. E.J. Dion, he's co-author of the new book, One Nation After Trump. E.J., thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Real joy to be with you. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.